0: We're going to jump into Matthew chapter ten this week, and uh, as uh, you know, as I like to say from time to time, one of the things about our church is that we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll begin studying through. We'll start at the front, and we'll just work our way through, and we'll, we'll read and we'll explain as we travel through. So we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we come to chapter ten. Now the the interesting thing about the Gospel of Matthew among the other gospels is that Matthew is built around five major discourses of Jesus, five major teachings of Jesus. And so which is one of the reasons why it's it's the longest gospel. So you have the first teaching that Jesus gave that you get more detail in Matthew than any other was what was called the Sermon on the Mount. And that dealt a great deal with with what it meant to be a disciple. And So we went through that. There's a lot of confusion about that. We were able to go through it and do some explaining. Very, very important what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Well we went through after that chapter 8 and chapter 9, then we come to chapter 10 and we've been in chapter 10 for the last couple of weeks, but chapter 10 is the second major discourse that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. Now we're going to wrap up chapter 10 today, but, but chapter 10... The, the Sermon on the Mount deals with what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. Chapter 10 deals with the consequences of being a follower of Jesus and taking the message of Jesus as, as, as you go forward. And so there's uh, some things that are very, very important. I thought that maybe we would skip over this, but there's some things in this last section of this that I think are very important, so we are going to actually go through uh, the, the rest of the chapter. And um, it's important because for some of us when we go through difficult times or we go through rejection we can think that there's something wrong with us. Maybe we're in sin, maybe we're handling things in the wrong way and and, and certainly that can always be true but but, uh, there there is a way that the world tends to respond to the gospel. So we're going to talk about that today. I want to, by way of review, I want to pick it up in verse one. And in verse one, it says, Jesus commanded his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verse two, he says, Now the names of the 12 apostles are, and uh, when we were there, one of the things that we talked about was that at this point Jesus has a number of disciples but out of that he's going to choose 12 that he will call apostles and he'll invest his time in those 12 and those are the ones that he's going to empower to do some very very unique things. Well as he does that in verse 5 it said these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them do not go in the way of the Gentiles or do not not enter any city of the Samaritans but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so when we were there, we talked about how Jesus was going to send out his disciples on what we would call a short term missions trip, very specifically to the lost sheep of Israel. So it's just going to be very Jerusalem or very Israel specific. So they weren't to go to the Gentiles, just to those who would be uh, Jewish there in Israel. Well, as they go on that short-term missions trip, one of the things that we find is some people will accept but uh, some people will reject. So in verse 14 it said, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off of your feet. And so some, some will receive and then, then some will, will just re- reject. When we came to verse 16 we saw that he's now speaking about a much larger mission, not mission trip, but just as as the disciples would go out, we talked about this last week and this would be as they go out later on. He says, behold I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. And so when we were there we talked about how The tone has changed, not going to the lost sheep of Israel, but now they are the sheep and they're going out among wolves. And so things are going to be very, very different. So some are going to receive and some are going to reject. But later on, as the disciples go out, and certainly in the world that we live in, sometimes it's more than just rejection. In verse 21, we saw. Brother will betray brother unto death and a father his child and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And so we talked about that sometimes the hostility is so great and some, that sometimes happens around the world, not so much in the United States of America but, but around the world. And we talked about that last week. In this chapter Jesus is preparing his disciples for the responses that they will receive, uh, the responses that you and I will receive as believers as we go out and we share. And so today we're going to go from chapter 20, uh, verse 24 through verse 42 and again, I, I thought about skipping over this, this last portion, but there's a couple of things that Christians are, are very uh, confused on or, or mis, misunderstand in, in this chapter. So I, I know it's going to be more of what we talked about last week, but there's a couple of things that are very important for us to, to consider. So as we get into this, I want you to first of all notice verse 26 with your pen in hand. There's going to be a theme in this. Verse 26, in my translation it says, therefore do not fear. And I want you to underline however your Bible says it. And then go down to verse 28, and once again it says, do not fear, and you want to underline that. And then go down to verse 31, he says, so do not fear, do not fear. So one of the things that we're going to find is that while we are on mission, not on a mission, but while we're on mission as believers in him, the emphasis here is going to be to fear not. However your Bible says it, just, just write that down. So the question is, why does he keep reiterating, do not fear? One of the things that we find about Jesus is that he's constantly in the Gospels telling his disciples, this is how it's going to be. So that when it happens, you won't be surprised. It's going to happen just like I said. For instance, on the, uh, the Last Supper, Jesus will say this there in your outline. He says, now I've told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. So Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, This is what the future looks like. So when you experience it, you, you know. So do do not fear. So chapter ten is preparing his disciples to go out and at times to experience some hostility. We're going to pick it up in verse twenty four. Verse twenty four, and it says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher. And the slave, like his master, if they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, some of your translations will say Beelzebub, we'll talk about that, how much more will they malign the members of his household? And so here in verse 24, this section he opens up, and just write this down, basically he's saying that people are going to treat us just like they treated Jesus. So when when you look at Jesus' ministry you find that some received, some rejected, some were openly hostile, uh, some wanted to kill Jesus. And so um, there's going to be a number of responses but basically they're going to treat you and I as his followers as they treated Jesus. So don't be surprised at those responses. Some of your Bibles, I love in verse 25, at the last part he says, they've called the head of the house, it's Jesus, Beelzebul. And some of your translations say Beelzebub. If your your Bible says Beelzebub, how many of your Bibles say Beelzebub? Okay. Uh, that's one way of saying it. Beelzebub there on your outline was just the name of a Philistine god. And uh, that word literally translated means Lord of the house. Does everybody see that? Lord of the house. So, But if you were Jewish in the first century, one of the things you know from what we would call the Old Testament is you were not even to take the name of a foreign god on your lips. You wouldn't even say their name. So when the Jewish people would refer to this deity that the Philistines worshipped, uh, they wouldn't say Beelzebub, they would change it and say Beelzebul. So what does Beelzebul mean? Well, uh, there in your outline, uh, Beelzebul just means the Lord of Dung. So that's what they, it was their way of not having to say the name and it was their way of expressing their sentiments about this God that the Philistines worship. He was considered by the Jewish people to be the king of the demons. And so um, what's going to be interesting as we travel through through uh, Matthew is that it becomes a common slur against Jesus to say that he just does this because he's doing this in the name of Beelzebul or Beelzebub, the the Lord of of demons. There in your outline in Matthew 9 it said it like this. But the Pharisees were saying he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. So it, it, it became a common slur. Now the reason that's important, I know we've talked about some of this in the previous part of the chapter, but just very quickly, uh, one of the things that we find in Jesus' ministry as they treat us like Him, one of the things that they will use uh, as they reject or if they're hostile will just be and I want you to write this down, false accusations. And the truth is if they did this to Jesus, they're they're going to do this to to you and I. Cheryl and I were having a conversation about this uh, over the past you know we're celebrating 20 years here next week, and over the years certain things have been said uh, about us, and um, 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 I'm not going to tell you what they were because I don't want to put it in your mind. But you know people say things, people say things, and so you can't you can't let that that bother you. So here's the good news, and we're we're gonna there's a part of this chapter I really want to talk to, but we're just going to kind of move a little bit quickly as we go. Verses 26 and 27, he says. He says, therefore do not fear them, and we underline that, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. I tell you in darkness, speak in the light and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Proclaim upon the housetops. So what he's saying here, and we'll just go through this very quickly, the good news is although they'll make false accusations God will reveal the truth in time. And you want to write that down there's going to come a time when God's going to make it very evident. Uh, Just like you, uh, we've all had people say things about us, and uh, sometimes you just have to wait until God makes it evident. Um, The part that has always bothered me is that God takes a lot more time than I would like him to take. Now, am I alone in this? We're going to talk to him about this when we get there, But, but but he does. And so But the the part that I wanted to highlight in this verse, he says, therefore do not fear them. And uh, you'll find that word fear, uh, phobia or phobos, uh, it's the same word. Uh, Do not fear them. So that word phobia that you see there on your outline, uh, that word phobia, we get the English word phobia. Actually, you'll never get it wrong here, I promise. But But in that day, here's what that word meant. And I just want you to underline a couple of things as we travel through. Uh, To terrify, to frighten, to put to flight by terrifying, like running for your life. To be put to flight, to flee, to fear, be afraid, to to reverence, venerate, to treat with deference or reverential obedience. So, So when they they do this. They're hostile to the gospel. You don't want to respond with phobia or phobos. Um, you don't want to panic. You, you don't want to run away uh, hysterically. Uh, you don't want to also at the, on the other side, you don't want the, the second part of that uh, to reverence or venerate or treat with deference Sometimes we think if we just give, give them what they want they'll go away and they'll stop. He says no that, that's not going to work either so just you, know, you be who it is that God's called you to be and just understand that no matter what they do, what they say, God will reveal at a certain time. Well verse 28 he says so do not fear those who kill the body. Once again you're going to see that word uh, phobia or phobus. Do not fear Those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body, uh, both the soul and body in hell. So, on the one hand, you don't want to respond with this phobos, phobio, this terrified response, or even giving in, venerating, or reverencing them, thinking that that's going to work. Not to them, but on the other hand, he says, instead of that, make sure that you fear God. There on your outline, fear God. The word there, uh, same word, Just uh, I just put the last half of the, the definition, to reverence, venerate, to treat with deference or reverential obedience. So you don't give that to them, you give that to God is, is what he's saying. So here's why. Verse 29. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, very, very simply, write this down, and we'll unpack it. God's just saying, I just care for my own. He cares for his own. It's in the time of difficulty, and this is what this chapter is about, disciples facing difficulty, rejection, at times some great hostility. It's in that time of difficulty that we begin to question whether, God, you, you see, whether you care, do you even know what's going on? And it's in that time that, as we go through those dark times, that, that uh, we question and we begin to doubt and so Jesus takes an illustration that would be very foreign to you and I in this, in, as Westerners 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, and he takes an uh, illustration that would be very common to them. You see, in that day, when he says they're, they're sold for a cent, uh, the, the word in the original language refers to the least valuable coin in the, the Roman Empire. So it, it's, it's nothing, basically. And, um, and two sparrows, you could get two of them for a penny, some of your translations would say. And the idea is that, that they were considered in that culture the least valuable. I mean, there's, just, there's so many of them, they're just so valueless you could get two for a penny. And so he says, but I want you to know, one of those doesn't even hit the ground without me noticing it. Then he says, he says, and even the hairs on your head are numbered. Now as I look around the room that's not a great thing for, for some of us but, but for others of us uh, that, that's uh, quite a lot. The point that Jesus is making here is that I am aware of the smallest details in your life. So in those times where it feels that I'm very very absent uh, I'm uncaring, I'm silent, just know I'm aware of every single detail in your life. Because the disciples were going to go through that, and there are times when you and I are going to go through that. So going on beyond that, we come to verse 32. Now I have to tell you, uh, I went through all that so I could talk about this. This is uh, something that I think is very important for us as Christians to understand. What we're going to read is very commonly misunderstood, And uh, this verse and one other verse is the reason why I didn't skip over this last part of the chapter. Just say, go ahead and and read through. Um, Verse 32, he says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. This is very much a misunderstood passage in the New Testament. And uh, if you're like me, I've shared at times about in, in my church life growing up, and I've been all around the theological block. I have the most wonderful church background, but at times it was very wacky. And, uh, but I loved every minute of it. So with the wacky and the wonderful, it's, it's all in there. But this verse would be used at times to um, tell people that they could lose their salvation. And the way that it typically was taught was that there you are and you're facing a little bit of persecution, a little bit difficulty, and there you are you, you find that you don't want to take it and so you deny the Lord in that time I want you to know Jesus is going to turn to his heavenly Father and he's going to deny you. And uh, and, and implying that you could lose your salvation. Has anybody ever heard this? Am I even sharing this with the right congregation? Is it okay? So, so the question is: Is that what he's talking about? Is it when you have that momentarily, a momentary lapse in in strength? You might say, and you deny. You know, you're in a place where you could lose your life, and uh, you you know, you, you deny. You know, well. This is a time where you have to balance scripture with scripture and you have to look in context. You have to ask questions. So do we know anybody else in the New Testament who denied Jesus? Anybody? Anybody? Any name at all? Yeah, Peter? Peter. Okay, Peter. Yeah, everybody knows it, right? So the question, was Peter denied before his heavenly father by Jesus? As a matter of fact, Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him, didn't he? So even before he denies, what does Jesus say? You know, Peter, here's what you're going to do. You're going to deny him. Of course, Peter's like, if everybody else does, I'm not going to. And Jesus says, well, here's the deal. When you return, you know, feed my sheep. So Jesus had already made preparation for Peter's denial. So I'm going to suggest to you that this has nothing to do with the believer being denied before their heavenly father because they, they blew it. Is that good news so far? Okay. Hopefully it gets better. Well, so let's look at a couple of things. First of all, there are times when it's just good to go back to a Greek dictionary to get a, the definition of the word, to expand our understanding. This is one of those times. So you have the word confess there in verse 32. Therefore if anyone confesses me. Now I know if you have the NIV translation it will say acknowledge. So however your Bible says it. Most of your Bibles will say confess but if it says acknowledge it's fine. It's the same Greek word. The Greek word is a compound word. It's homologio. And it means to speak the same. To speak the same things. Homos means same. lego means to speak. It means to assent accord, but I want you to underline where it says agree with. Does everybody see that? Agree with or to confess. And that comes from Vine's Expositional Bible Dictionary. And then you go to verse 33 and he says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Well again, you go to that word, the word deny there and again if you have the NIV it will say disown. I'm not crazy about that word, but but disown. Uh, And the word there, uh, I won't try to pronounce the Greek word there, means to contradict, to disavow, but I want you to underline the word reject. Does everybody see that? Reject. Underline that. Abnegate. Now then it says KJV. Now when you look at a Greek dictionary and it puts like KJV, what it tells you, and it adds a few words, this is the way that this word is translated in the King James. So a couple of ways this word is is translated. Uh, It's translated as to deny It can also be translated as refuse. Everybody underline the word refuse. So we've been in this chapter for a couple of weeks and we go to the beginning of the chapters we have the last couple of weeks and Jesus is called out of a larger number of disciples. He then chooses 12. These people are not casually committed in any way. They're about as full on as you can be. So there on your outline, I know this is a little bit more wordy than I tend to do, but the context of this chapter is this chapter is speaking to the committed. They're, they're apostles, so we'd say they're committed. The committed sent on a mission with the message. I'm going to suggest to you that these apostles, their salvation is secure. If you're a believer here today, I'm going to suggest your salvation is secure. So. If it's you deny him in a momentary moment of weakness, and that means that Jesus then denies you, uh, that means that your salvation is more based upon your ability to keep it than what it is that he did for you. We would not, not hold that. We're saved because of what he did. We don't bring a lot to the table. And when I say we don't bring a lot to the table, that's an overstatement. We don't bring anything other than we get to say yes, and he even gives us the power to do that. So this chapter is all about taking the message. And as we've gone through this chapter, what we found is that as the message goes forward, some are going to receive and some are going to reject. That's the bad news. The good news, some will receive and some will reject. So I'm going to suggest to you that this is what this is talking about. They're on your outline. As we go and we share the gospel, some will Confess. And I want you to write the word agree, agree, because that's part of the definition, agree. They will agree. And the promise is that when they agree Jesus says I will confess them before my Father who is in heaven. Then on the other side you have uh, as we go and we share the gospel others will deny but in that little space I want you to write the word reject because that's what the word means in the definition. As a matter of fact, the New Century Version will say it like this, but all who stand before others and say they do not believe in me, I will say before my Father in Heaven that they do not belong to me. So the idea here is what Jesus is saying is that as you take the message, those who agree, we would say they confess, Those, he says, I now confess before my Father who is in heaven. It's a promise. But as you go, some are going to reject. They're going to deny it. I don't want it. I don't believe it. And he says, those are the ones that I will deny. They're not mine. So the idea here is this has nothing to do with the believer going out and having a momentary lapse in strength. It has to do with the one who is hearing the message receiving or rejecting. The one who receives he says I will, you know, I will confess him before my father. The one who denies it I will deny before my father. So it's not talking about your salvation, it's talking about how it's received by those that we share it with. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, and hopefully uh, that frees some of us up. Um, did you find that interesting? At least, good. I, that's all I got. Let's close in prayer. We, we got so um, so. Let, let's uh, verse thirty-two. He says, "Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven." Very very quickly, we won't elaborate. But those who confess him will be honored by him, as they say yes. He turns to his father and says, "Yes, they're mine. They're honored by him." Now, verse 34, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. As the gospel is going out, now you and I, again, as we said last week, we live in the United States of America Our country was founded on the freedom of religion, um, but not every country is like ours. We talked about some countries where when one person becomes a believer, uh, literally the rest of the family becomes the enemy. You can be excommunicated from your family and at times turned in by your family and and, uh, to face terrible consequences. But what Jesus is saying here is that there are times when one becomes a believer and your allegiance is so strong to the Lord, uh, but not everybody in the family receives that. They reject. And when that happens it creates a division within the family. It's always sad when that happens, but that's the reality. Sometimes receiving Jesus brings division. Verse 30, um, verse 37 he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, but he who loves his son or daughter let me read that again. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Being a disciple, Jesus uses in that culture uh, an illustration that they would all understand. Guys, you have to understand, we live in the first generation in in our country where families dissolve. Divorce didn't take place a hundred years ago like it does now, or 200 years ago. Uh, families stayed together. And so he's using an illustration in that culture where you, you never walked away from your family. And so he says, and even though we are, we are attached and, and loyal to our family, when there's division, he is always our highest priority, even if it costs us our family, is the idea. I personally want you to know I am very grateful for all of the books and the teachings on family that the church has produced. And because when Cheryl and I got married, we were clueless about marriage and we were clueless about family, and you've heard some of the some of the stories. So I'm very, very grateful. But we've come to learn, you know, as we think about becoming a believer should make you a better dad, a better husband, better wife, better mom. The what has, if we are that it's our allegiance to Jesus that has made us that. And uh, and yet we realize that our greatest allegiance is always to Jesus. And hopefully the result of that is is a great allegiance to our family and hopefully uh, healing the family. But that doesn't always happen. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, again, I was tempted to say, let's just read through the rest of the chapter. This is the other verse that I wanted to talk about because it can be often misunderstood. Verse 38, he says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So in order to explain this verse, I put a few things on our outline that hopefully will will add some some, uh, clarity. It's important to understand that this is the first mention of the cross in this gospel. It's also important to to understand that up to this point in the gospel, Jesus has not told his disciples about him going to the cross. The disciples at this point have no idea that Jesus will one day die on the cross. He's not talking about, they they have no concept of, of that. So when he says this, this would be very jarring to them. So the question has to be, how would the disciples have understood this? You see, you and I, 2,000 years after the fact, when we think of the term cross, we think it all refers to Jesus going to the cross. Well, up to this point, Jesus has never mentioned the cross to his disciples. Him going or anything about it being significant for salvation. So this is very new information. Uh, He's not even referring to, To him going to the cross. So what's taking place, and this is important because um, from time to time, someone will say, as they go through difficulty, they will say, Well, you know, we all got to bear our cross, you know, this is my cross, my grumpy husband, you know, got to bear my cross. Anybody ever heard something like that? Got to bear my cross. Well, the problem with that is we think that the cross is difficulty. Well, the, the cross is not difficulty. When Jesus talks about the the cross. He's not talking about hardship because Jesus faced hardship, but that wasn't the cross. So, so to understand what he's saying here, you want to write this down. The cross did not mean difficulty. It meant only death. It meant only death. Now, when he, he uses this term, it's something that everybody would be familiar with. When you were a prisoner and you were sentenced to death on the cross what would take place is that you would have the beam of the cross, the cross beam, attached to you and you would have to carry that to the place of your execution. And so when you did that you would carry your own cross to that place of execution. Now on one side he's saying uh, there in your outline, if we're going to follow him we will have to die to our comfort and agenda, which is true which is true. Our lives will have to be about him and not about us. But here's the part that we miss. And this is the part where what Jesus is saying becomes at odds with much of what is taught in modern Christianity. Jesus says, if you won't pick up your cross, you're not worthy of me. When someone took up their cross in that day, they understood some things. They understood that there was no negotiating in the situation. Your fate was sealed at that point. They realized that they could not go back, talk their way out of it. The cross had been attached to them. And and they knew what was ahead. When you picked up your cross, when they put that on you, here's what it meant. You want to write this down. When someone took up their cross, they understood that their hope was no longer in this life. You knew exactly what was going to take place. You weren't thinking about building a better business. You weren't thinking about repairing your marriage. You weren't thinking about getting your finances in order. When you picked up that cross, you understood your hope was no longer in this life. Does that make sense? Now, why is that so important? And this makes us at odds with much of what is out there. Much of what is taught is that the gospel is Jesus comes alongside of us to help us accomplish our dreams, our aspirations to achieve our goals. In one sense it becomes all about us. Jesus says, no, when you come to me you pick up your cross, your hope is no longer in this life. Now, Jesus loves to bless his kids. He loves to bless his people. But whether he blesses or he doesn't, our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in the next life. You see, for the person carrying their cross, they knew when they got there that this was the end. And so they no longer had a hope in this life. They only had a hope that something would lie beyond this life, and so um, this is very different than what many would say in, in Christianity, where it's all about this life and enhancing this. Now, it's important when you and I come to the place where we say, "Whatever, whatever death it means, whatever I have to die to, whatever I have, you know, whatever it is, I'm, I'm following you, and 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 that's that's it. I'm you're the number one priority of my life. That's settled." Then he says in verse 39, he who has found his life will lose it, but he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. What he's saying is that as believers, we have to come to the place where we recognize our hope is not here. Our hope is in him and him alone. And that means we might have to die to some things here. And if he wants to bless us, that's great. And he does, he loves to bless us. Um, I've led a very, very blessed life and uh, God loves to do that. But if it all goes away tomorrow my hope is not in this life. My hope is in him. When somebody's hope is in this life, when God doesn't do it the way that they want him to do it, they're mad at God. How many times have you heard somebody say, well I'm going to give God one more chance. I'm going to, you know, you know, what's he done, you know, and they, they list all the things that God didn't do. They never picked up their cross. It's all about them. They think that Jesus came to die on the cross to help them accomplish their dreams, their aspirations, their goals. It's all about them. That's not where it is. We pick up our cross and we say, whatever the cost I'm in, and then he responds and saying, and if you lose your life, I want you to know that's where you're really going to find it. That's where you experience him. That's where you experience the joy. That's where you experience the empowering and everything that he promises. But we don't experience that when it's all about us. Does that make sense? And with that, I'm going to let you read to the end of the chapter, and I'm going to close in prayer. Did you find that interesting? Good. Hopefully it it brought some clarity. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap this up today, um, Lord, thank you for your word, and, and Lord, thank you for explanation. We realize that there is this temptation at times to think that our hope is here, and we realize, Lord, that our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in you, whatever lies beyond, and uh, yet, Lord, you love to bless us in this life, and many of us have led very, very blessed lives. And um, and Lord, we've come to the place where we realize that if it all goes away tomorrow, our hope isn't in, in these things. Our hope is still in you. And so, Father, we come to you and we say, Lord, whatever you want, we want. So I pray that you help us to be the people of God that you've called us to be, to walk in the manner that you've called us to walk, and help us to represent you well in all things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.